it is my absolute privilege to introduce our speaker for today, um, Swami Sarvapriyanandaji. Um, so Swami Sarvapriyanandaji is the minister and the spiritual leader of the Vedanta Society of New York since January 2017. Swamiji is a well-known speaker on Vedanta and his talks are very popular with the internet audience. In one of his lectures right before, I've seen him being introduced as the, as the YouTube Swami. And, uh, and I would like to go a bit further and state that you are absolutely the rock star YouTube Swami. You know, uh, the rock here being you, you, you are the rock for Sanatana Dharma. And, uh, and you are the North Star, you know, giving us the direction. So absolutely, I, I'm in awe of you, Swamiji. Okay, so and uh, I just um, I just feel that it's it's fantastic to have you with us today. I'm I'm so I'm so very pleased that you agreed to talk to us. Um, Swamiji has been a speaker on various prestigious forums like uh, TEDx, Sand, and has been engaged in dialogues with eminent personalities like Deepak Chopra and Rick Archer. So Swamiji has played a very prominent role in organizing and participating in various interfaith panels and seminars, including speaking at the World Parliament of Religions in Toronto in 2018 and at the United Nations headquarters in New York. Swamiji, personally, I would also like to say, like I mentioned before, I've been listening to your talks for many, many years now, and I, I consider you to be my guru, and so Kodi Kodi pronounce to you, okay? Thank you so much for speaking to us today. And uh, I would, without any further delay, I would like you to request, um, request Swami Sarvapriyanaji to take it away on self-knowledge in Bhagavad Gita. Please go ahead, Swamiji. Vasudevasutam devam kamsachanu ramardhanam devaki paravanandam krishnam vande jagat guru. Thank you for that very generous introduction. Uh, my thanks to the uh, authorities, the organizers in the Guruvayu Temple uh, from uh, Brampton, Toronto. I know it's a very cold day. It's a very cold uh, evening here in New York too. Uh, I still think in Celsius. So just looking it up, it's uh, minus 19, feels like minus 19 Celsius here. And I looked up Toronto and it's minus 29, minus 30 there. <laughs> feels like minus 30 Celsius there. Thanks to the uh, wonders of modern technology, we are able to uh, be together uh, from so far across uh, and in the comfort of our warmth and the comfort of our own homes and speak to each other. I can see uh, known faces. Namaskar to all of you. I can see um, Amataji, I think from Chinmay Mission, Pramiti Chaitanya Ji. So namaskars to her as well. Um, and uh, the subject this evening is self-knowledge in the Bhagavad Gita. So I'll speak about it briefly. Uh, for maybe half an hour or so, and then we can have Q&A. That's more interesting. Think of for your questions. You can put it in the chat box and the, uh, the compare will uh, organize the Q&A after that. All right. So in the Bhagavad Gita, when Sri Krishna starts speaking in the second chapter, the first thing that he tells Arjuna is the knowledge of the self. And think how interesting and surprising that is because that's not what Arjuna asked at all. 
Uh, Arjuna was asking about this battle which he is going to fight. He does not want to fight this battle. Should he fight this battle or not? It was a question more of ethics and duty rather than metaphysics and self-knowledge. And yet, Krishna straight away, his answer is Vedanta, the knowledge of the self. That's the first part of the uh, second chapter when Krishna starts speaking. And the first words he uses gives us a clue to as to why he does this. He says in the 11th verse, Nanushochanti Panditaha, in the 11th verse he says, those who are Pandita, Pandita, they, they go beyond sorrow. Now, normally the word we, we know Pandit to mean a scholar. A, a person who has traditional learning, Sanskrit learning, maybe is called a pandit. Now the word pandit is in English. So you also have a stock market pandit in Wall Street here. Somebody who can predict the ups and downs. There are political pandits and so on. But what does pandit mean actually? Adi Shankaracharya in his Bhashya, uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, later on, not in this verse, later on, he explains what pandit means. That panda, the word panda, Again, the word panda, you know, in many Hindu temples, it's the priest in the temple is called a panda. But Shankaracharya says the real meaning of panda is Atma Vishaya Pragya, the one who has self-knowledge, the knowledge of the self. Who are we? Who am I truly? What's the point of knowing who am I? You know, often Vedanta books, they will start with an objection, Purva Paksha. Why should we be interested in self-knowledge? First of all, I know who I am. It's not something new. I know it. And second, even after knowing who I am, I still have sorrow. I, I, am, I have so many problems. So self-knowledge, it's nothing new. We already have it. And second, even after having it, we have sorrow. And here Krishna says just the opposite. Those who have self-knowledge, they go beyond sorrow. Which means, first, the kind of self-knowledge which we think we have our CVs, our biodata, you know, what we know about ourselves and our surroundings, our, our personal narrative. That's not what is meant by sorry, Krishna as self-knowledge. So what is this self-knowledge? He will tell us and we'll see how it takes us beyond sorrow. So the next few verses from the 12th verse onwards still uh, about, I would say, about the 30th verse. From the 12th to the 30th verses, the second chapter, the essence of self-knowledge, Jnana Yoga, Advaita, you will find there. Now, we don't have the time now to go through these verses one by one. I will just try to present like an executive summary of what Krishna has said. And then just think about that and you can ask your questions. So the first thing that Krishna says is that we are Nitya. We are eternal. We, we, we are not that, you know, we don't. We are not born, nor do we die. This is the first thing that Krishna says, and he hammers it in over the course of several verses. Why? Because it's a battlefield. Because that was Arjuna's primary concern. That there's going to be a lot of death, and Krishna's answer is, "We do not die." That uh, yes, there's death of the body and so on, but what we truly are, that is immortal. So this idea of our real self being immortal. This is being introduced by the word nitya. And how many times he says this? In the write-up, the 12th verse, he says, Natvevaham jatu nasam natvam neme janadhipa na bhavishyama sarve param. 
It is not that uh, you and I and all these kings and you know the soldiers who have assembled here, it's not that we did not exist earlier. We existed. It's not that we shall not exist after this uh, battle is over. Whether you live or die, we will still exist. Then he, in the... Um, uh, in the 18th verse, he says, Antavanta ime deha nityasya ukta sharirinaha. These bodies which belong to the embodied soul, we all are embodied, but these bodies have an end. But you, the embodied one, you have no end. The shariri, you have no end. Nitya, nityasya ukta sharirinaha. Again, the word nitya comes up here. Again, we find in the 20th verse, the 20th verse is famous verse. Najayate briyate va kadachit nayam bhutva bhavita va nabhuya ajo nitya shashvato ayam purano nahanyate hanyamane sharire. The self, it's not born, nor does it die. Uh, it's not that it again comes into existence, not being there, it comes into existence by being born. No, it is birthless, it is constant. Nitya, again the word nitya comes, it is constant. It is eternal, ancient. It is not slain when the body is slain. So he goes on like this. Even the, uh, for example, the twenty-second verse, again famous. Vasamsi jirnani yathaviyaya navani grinhati naro parani. As a person gives up old clothes, uh, soiled clothes, and one puts on new clothes. Similarly, tatha sharirani behaya jirnan anyani sanyati navani dehi. So this embodied being, when the body is worn out, it gives up this body, what we call death, and then gets new bodies. But this embodied being is nitya, it is eternal. In the 23rd verse, Krishna says, Nainam chindanti shastrani nainam dahati pavaka nachainam kledayantyapo nashoshayati maruta. So this cannot be destroyed by any of the elements, by any weapons and so on. So this nitya nature of uh, the self. Our first thing that we know about ourselves is that we are mortal. And Krishna strikes at that, that you are not mortal, you are immortal. Why do we think that we are mortal? Just a little bit of deliberation on that before we go ahead. Well, because we die. Our answer would be because we die. But what is it exactly that dies? The body dies. Clearly, the body dies. It's the body which is born. It's the body which dies. How do you know that the person is dead when the body is dead? See, here is a, a subtle point. Uh, how we fool ourselves. When we are interacting, as it, right now, we do not ever think we are interacting with bodies. We think we are interacting with persons, with sentient beings. You are a person. You are an embodied person, but you are a person. That's how what we feel all the time. Now, upon death, what happens? We know that the body is dead and we automatically assume that the person is dead. Do you see the uh, assumption which sneaks in? We have sort of assumed that the person is the body. But this is an unsaid, implicit assumption. The person is the body. Who told us that? How do we know that? That the person is the body? In our own experience, for example, every day, I'll give you another um, thing to think about. Every day, when we fall asleep, we dream. And when we dream, notice something. When we fall asleep and we dream, 
we have no uh, awareness of our body. Our physical body is sleeping on the bed. We don't know it. We have forgotten it completely. And we are inhabiting a dream world. Now, consciously, in, uh, you know, phenomenologically, if you look at your own experience, you still continue. A dream experience, after all, is an experience. Often we have memories of our dreams. And in those dreams, our physical body, which was lying on the bed, was no part of that dream. It was not there at all, in our own dreams. Which means, what am I driving at? Which means, one can continue to exist and experience internally, within oneself, as a person, conscious, phenomenologically, without any reference to our physical body. Let me repeat that. Our dream experience proves to us that just as we are experiencing now, you are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, thinking, remembering, enjoying, suffering. In our dreams also, we seem to um, you know, see or hear or smell or uh, think. Or, and we definitely enjoy and suffer. Uh, there are good dreams. There are nightmares. So that experience of being a conscious being, it continues. A sentient being continues in dream, but this body is not there. That means it proves in principle you could have a continuation of your own existence as a sentient being without this body. At this point, a materialist will say, no, 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 you are making a big jump. You, the sentient being, you, the conscious being, you are being generated by the brain, which is being part, is, is a part of the body. So even if the body is asleep, the brain is working and is generating like a candle burning is generating a flame. You are being generated by the brain. So if the body is not there, you would not exist to go on dreaming. Your dreaming without reference to the body does not prove that you are not the body. You are being generated by the body. The body is the real you. You as the conscious being is like a secondary, what is called an epiphenomenon. What's the problem there? This is a fatally wrong argument. This is where the whole question of the hard problem of consciousness comes in. That is a term uh, coined by David Chalmers, who is a, uh, a professor in NYU, is head of the Mind-Brain-Consciousness Unit. Basically, he wants to say that there is no way, in principle, philosophically speaking, how can we think of a physical entity like the brain? Brain is, a, is, a, um, is an organ of the body is a piece of living matter, just like your kidney, your liver, brain. How can that generate an internal first-person qualitative experience? After all, what do you see when you ex uh, examine the brain? Little bursts of electricity. The finest, closest scanning of the brain will, will reveal to you but tiny bursts of electricity in the neurons. That's all. From those bursts of electricity, how do you come to the color red? I can see many of you are wearing a red dress. How am I seeing the red color? How are you hearing my voice? How are you having the sense of a personal existence? All of these things, how are you having? From bursts of electricity, where is the connection between bursts of electricity in the head and your living conscious experience now? That is an unbridgeable gap, an explanatory gap. This is called the hard problem of consciousness. You cannot therefore argue you are being generated by the body, the brain. If the body goes, then you are gone. No. To argue in that way, you first have to prove that your conscious experience as a sentient being is actually a product of brain processes. There is strong correlation. 
between brain processes and the reported conscious experience uh, by us. But correlation is not causation. Brain is producing consciousness. There is no explanation. And that's the hard problem. If you Google it, you'll find it's a hot area of debate in the world today. So, Nitya, Krishna claims that you exist. Why um, uh, just the why um, why Atman, which is pure consciousness? Even the mind continues to exist after death. So, according to Vedanta, we have a tripartite uh, existence. You know, physical body, which is born, ages, dies, and a mental body, subtle body, sukshma sharira, mind, emotions, memory, and the sukshma sharira, which continues, which was there before the birth of this body, which will continue after the death of this body. Beyond the sukshma sharira, sharira is still a body. Beyond the sukshma sharira is the Atman, the real you, the real I. What is this Atman? Because we know what a physical body is. It's made of living matter. We know what a subtle body is. It's made of thoughts, emotions, memories, and Vedanta will say it's made of Tanmatras. But what is, the, what is the Atman? What's it, to put it crudely, what's it made of? It's made of consciousness, awareness, pure being, pure awareness, Sat Chit. So that is Nitya. It does not come into being with the um, birth of the body. It does not die with the death of the body. So that's the first thing Krishna tells us, self-knowledge. It is a tremendous change, a paradigm shift in our understanding of ourselves. We thought of ourselves as mortal beings. Krishna says, no, you are an immortal being. You don't have to be particularly spiritual to be immortal. You are unconditionally. It doesn't matter whether you are spiritual or not. Let alone Atma, even the subtle body, Sukshma Sharira, does not die with the death of the body. So nobody dies with the death of the body. Nobody comes into existence with the birth of the body also. That's what Krishna says. It's not that we did not exist earlier. It's not that we will not exist later. We have all existed earlier. We will all exist later. Not one person who has died has gone out of existence. All of us are still there. So this is a tremendous assertion. Then the next thing that Krishna says is um, Sarva Vyapi. Uh, in, the 20, in the 17th verse, Avinashi tutad viddhi yena sarvamidam tatam. Very interesting. He says the self, we always think of the self as, you know, we're talking about self-knowledge. We always think of the self as, I am the self and everything else is other than me. I am atma and everything is anatma. Self and other. What is the other? Well, I'm here and everything else here is the other. Um, uh, this computer is other from me. All those people I see, you're all others. Uh, and this, even the clothes that I'm wearing is other. I am the self and everything else is separate from me. Even the body, I can say, is separate from me because I experience it. Krishna here says, Yena sarvamidam tatam. No, just the opposite. He says, we feel that self is there only in this body. Krishna says, no, the self is there in everybody. Everything in this universe is pervaded by the self. There is no other. I'm reminded of Ma Sharada's very simple, last instruction, teaching of her life. In Bengali, she said, My child, if she's talking to a lady, there is no other. Nobody is a stranger to you. Make everybody your own. Here, Krishna is saying, Whatever you experience is 
you yourself. Now, how can we understand that? We clearly feel I am this, at the most I can be this body, but outside this body, outside this skin is not me. How am I, how is the self all of this? It could be like this. One example is the dream example, a favorite for Advaitins. So in the dream, we, when we dream, we are noticed that we are ourselves there in our dream. There are people in the dream, we meet with people, there are places we visit, there's a sky and the earth, and uh, we interact with people, and we apparently have an existence within the dream. There's a body, there's a personality, we inhabit that personality. So there is a self and an other in the dream. You are there and others are there in the dream. But when you wake up, what happens? When we wake up from the dream, what happens? We realize both the self and the other in the dream, I and everybody else I saw, everything else I saw was nothing other than my dreaming mind. My mind itself became all of that. I, the dreamer, I became self and other in the dream world. Everything in the dream world is pervaded by me, the dreamer. Now what Krishna is claiming is not just the dream. The dream world, that's very clear. What I said is an example. It's very clear. He's claiming here that in this waking world also, where the division between self and other becomes is so sharp, he says, actually, it's not true. The self is all that there is. Everybody is included in the self. Nobody is included. If you do like a deep, depth psychology, you will see there is no other. So, yena sarva midam tatam sarva vyapi sarva vyapaka. That is the second thing he tells us about the self. All these are dramatic. We think we are we, uh, subject to death. He says, no, you are nitya. We think we are limited in this one body. He says, no, you are all pervasive. Everything is within you. You are not separate from everything. You are not a tiny being in a vast universe. Rather, the vast universe is in you. You are vast. In fact, the word Brahma, the Sanskrit word Brahma, which is used to denote God or ultimate reality, literally, we take the etymological meaning. Brahma means vast, limitless. That's the meaning of the word Brahma. Third, the third point which Sri Krishna brings out is even more stunning. Sixteenth verse, Krishna says, the self alone is real. The non-self, the other, the world is an appearance in you, the reality. You, the self, the capitalist self, are the reality in which uh, the subject and the object, the small self and the other, they appear. Individual and world, they appear. Where does he say this? 16th verse. The 16th verse is, at, at least as far as Advaita Vedanta is concerned, is absolutely central. Um, it is the philosophical heart of the Bhagavad Gita. This is not my words. The sadhu said, to Gita ki hai. This is the philosophical heart. If you want to see it metaphysically, 16th verse of second chapter. Nasato vidyate bhavo, nabhavo vidyate sataha, ubhayo ropi drishtvantas, tvanayo tattvadarshibihi. That which uh, does not exist, that will never come into existence. That which exists never goes out of existence. What does that mean? Very quickly. Here, the self is identified with being, with existence. You say, but just a minute. The world also exists. I know I exist. I'm very sure about that. Uh, but the world also exists. But notice, the world exists in relation to you. From your perspective, 
everything, everything in the world, all living beings, all human beings, all non-human things, sentient, insentient, the vast and the tiny, all of that exists in relation to you. What do I mean in relation to you? It is presented to you. It is experienced by you. You existing, then you experience the world. So the entire world is uh, appearing to you. Now, your own existence is undoubted. This was the great discovery of the uh, French philosopher, scientist, mathematician Descartes. You know, he started, he had this project to find out the firm foundations of all knowledge. So when he investigated, what is it that can be doubted and what is it that can never be doubted? He found that by one's own existence can never be doubted. I think, therefore I exist. Vedanta would say the opposite. I exist, therefore I think. Yeah? So my own existence is undoubted. And to this undoubted existence appears the doubtful world. Descartes saw that anything in this world can be doubted. Whatever you see could be a mirage, could be an illusion, could be virtual reality, could be a dream. So whatever our sensory experiences are, it could all be false. But your one thing which cannot be false is this you are this conscious entity. That cannot be false. It can, it's unfalsifiable on principle. So the entire world exists to you. It appears to you. Its existence can be doubted. Your own existence is primary. It cannot be doubted. This appearance nature of this world, that it borrows its existence from your existence. I will not go into the logic of it. Adi Shankaracharya gives a very sophisticated, long commentary on the 16th verse. Detailed commentary to show that the self alone has undoubted existence and everything else borrows its existence from the self. That which borrows existence in Vedanta, it is called false. It is like it does not have satta, existence of its own. It has borrowed existence. That is false. This is the meaning of Brahma Satya Jagat Mithya. Brahman means the Atma. The self, the real self, capital S, is the reality. The world is an appearance. The universe is an appearance. The universe, including this body, including this little personality, they are appearances in what? In the self, in you, this pure being, pure consciousness. That's the third and very stunning point. This is the essence of Vedanta. Brahma Satyam, existence alone is real. Existing things are appearances. I'm making a distinction, a Heideggerian distinction. Those who enjoy continental philosophy will see this. A Heideggerian distinction between being, existence, and existence. Uh, so existence is reality, and existence appear uh, in existence. I was reading this beautiful book, which talks about uh, some of those um, uh, 20, early 20th century philosophers. It talks about Wittgenstein, it talks about Heidegger, it talks about Walter Benjamin. It's a very nice book called A Time of the Magicians. And there the author, he imagines a dialogue between, he says, imagine Heidegger and Wittgenstein, two great philosophers of 20th century, European philosophy. They're walking together. Never happened. He imagines it. They're walking together. And Heidegger exclaims to Wittgenstein that uh, how magical, how extraordinary that these things to, that they, there should be existing things. You know, why do things exist at all? He says, Heidegger says, look here, a rock, a plant, you know, just ordinary things. It, here is existence, here is existence, here is existence, appearing as existing things. How amazing. We think it's most ordinary. 
but that existence should appear as existing things, that's an amazing thing. And then, of course, Wittgenstein's contribution to the, the um, this dialogue is, Wittgenstein says, yes, it's amazing, but it cannot be said. Language cannot express what you're trying to do. If you say it, it becomes false. So very beautiful conversation. Anyway, so that's the third thing Krishna says. The self, we're talking about the self. You are the truth. And the world is an appearance in you. Brahma Satyam, Jagat Mithya, Jiva, you. Brahmaivanapara, you are that Satyam, you are that reality. I'm racing against time here. And then what does he say? Um, he says, you are Abhyaya, unchanging. In the 17th verse, he says, Vinasham Abhyayasya Nakaschit Kattum Harati. So, uh, nobody can destroy this immutable self. Now, you might say, didn't you just say in the beginning that you are Nitya, eternal? Now, why are you adding again Abhyaya, immutable, changeless? Because there can be a continuous existence which is changing all the time. For example, a river. A river is continuously there. But it is changing from moment to moment. There is a saying that you cannot bathe in the same river twice. Because when you bathe in there and then you come out and you bathe again in it, the water has flown by and more water is there now. It is a name of a continuous change. So this samsara, it is eternal in a sense. Maya is eternal, but continuously changing. Um, I said earlier, the body dies. But the mind, the subtle body, continues to exist. Sukshma Sharira. But Sukshma Sharira exists, but it's continuously changing. Right now, how much change is there? Thoughts, emotions, ideas, memories, continuous stream is flowing through us. This is what uh, in literature is called a stream of consciousness, you know. But according to Advaita Vedanta, that is the stream of the mind. And consciousness is not subject to change. Consciousness is the immutable witness, unchanging Abhyaya. Here is referring to the body undergoes, traditionally speaking, six-fold changes. Shadavikara, Shadavikara, six-fold changes. Not existing to come to existence in the mother's womb. It has come into existence. Then next, it is Jayat, it's born. And then next, it grows, baby to childhood to teenage, uh, Vardhate. Uh, then it att uh, attains maturity. Viparinamati, middle age. And then it begins to deteriorate, old age. Aches and pains and your digestion is not as good as it used to be and you lose your hair and get a bald spot and your teeth fall out. Apakshiyate, deterioration starts. And very soon we are over the hill. And then finally, Vinashyati, death. Six, four changes. So, Asti, Jayate, Vardhate, Viparinamate, Apakshiyate, Nashyati. And here he says, Abhyaya, the Atman does not change. Body goes through six-fold changes, mind changes continuously, but Atman is immutable. What else does he say? Um, in the 18th verse, very next verse, he says, Anashino aprameyasya tasmad yudhyasva bharata. He says about the self, it is aprameya. Another stunning deep. Each of these is you, know, you can write a whole book on each of these points. Aprameya. This is this self. It is not an object of knowledge. So Mataji's name is Pramiti Chaitanya. Now, Prameya is the object of knowledge. 
Pramiti, of course, here it means uh, enlightenment, the realization of Brahma Jnana, the arising of enlightenment. But Prameya means the object of knowledge. Is the self something that is an object of knowledge? Can we see it, hear it, smell it, taste it? No. Uh, can we um, speak about it? No. Can we conceive of it mentally? No. Aprameya. It's a not an object of knowledge. So just a minute, Swami. Are you not continuously using the word self, atma? So are you not referring to the self? No, actually not. If you look at it carefully, a book refers to an, a, a name refers to an object. Like if I say book, it refers to this object. It's a Gita, the book. Cloth refers to this object, cloth. But if I say atma, what does it refer to? Can you point it out? If I say pure consciousness, if I say thought, it refers to something. You know, you can't point it out, but you can see what it refers to. Emotion, memory. But if I say pure consciousness, what does it refer to? You can never point it out. So the self, he says, is aprameya. It's not an object of knowledge. It is not knowable through pratyaksha. That is the epistemology of enlightenment. You know, it's not knowable through uh, instruments of perception. You can't see it, hear it, smell it, taste it, touch it. It's not knowable through inference, anumana. It's not knowable through, um, you know, speaking about it, thinking about it. No. So is it completely unknowable? Something like uh, the Kant's nominal self, is it completely unknowable? Do we have to be agnostic about the self? No. Here, here hidden in this one word, aprameya, is a vast philosophy of Advaita Vedanta, of self-luminosity, svaprakasha. Vivekananda says, you must not go away thinking it is unknown and unknowable. It is more than known. You, the self, are the one to which all knowledge happens. You are not the object of knowledge, but you are the subject. To you, all knowledge happens. You are the one who deploys the instruments of knowledge. It is because of you there is hearing, smelling, tasting, talking. It is because of consciousness. There is inference, there is religion, there is science, there is art. Imagine consciousness is not there. Who will do science and art? Chat GPT. Eh. No. No artificial intelligence can do that. There is no consciousness involved there. They can mimic, but they cannot have that experience, inner experience, a religious experience, an aesthetic experience. No. That's possible only because of consciousness. So, aprameya, not an object of knowledge, and yet the subject. Because of you, the consciousness that all prameya and pramiti vevahara, the, the, the transactions of knowledge exist because of you. Because you are consciousness. What else does he say? Famous verse. Yainam vetti hantaram yaschainam manyate hatam ubhautau na vijanito nayam hanti na hanyate. 19th verse. Brahma. Uh, Emerson, right? The poet. So he um, uses this in his, in his poem. He quotes from this verse. That... Uh, he who thinks it to be a slayer, who thinks it is slain, both are ignorant. The self neither slays nor is slain. Of course, slaying and slain because of the context of the battlefield. But what it philosophically means is, actually you, the pure consciousness, you are neither the doer nor the experiencer, not the, the uh, experiencer of pain and pleasure. The doer of actions and the experience of the results of action. The doer of karma and the bhokta, the experience of the papa punya of karma, the sukha dukha of karma. But careful here, 
Pure consciousness by itself is not a doer. How will pure consciousness do anything? Pure consciousness by itself is not even an experiencer. However, because you are pure consciousness, because you are Atma, then only doing and experiencing is possible. Embodied in a mind and sensory system and body, then you become the doer and the experiencer. But by yourself, as pure awareness, no, you're not the uh, doer or the uh, experiencer, not bhokta, nor uh, karta, karta bhokta, katrittva bhoktrittva. This is denied of the self. See, all of these are completely counterintuitive. We think we are bound to die. He says you are nitya, immortal. We think we are um, uh, limited in this body. He says you are sarvavyapi, sarvam idam tatam, number two. Number three, we think the world is real. We, I don't know what we are, but the world is real. He says you are the reality. To you appears the world. You are real. The world is an appearance. Three. Um, next, uh, he says, we think we are con constantly changing. He says, no, the real you is immutable. Abhyaya, body changes, mind changes, but you are immutable. The person changes, personality changes. Then uh, he goes on further to say, even more subtle point, you are not an object of knowledge. If one thinks that, oh, what an amazing thing. You are the subject. You are that which makes all knowledge possible. It's like trying to see the eyes with the eyes. You cannot. But because of the eyes, all seeing is possible. Because of you as consciousness, all experience is possible. But you are not an object of experience. Aprameya. And finally, you are beyond the law of karma. You're neither karta nor bhokta. Vivekananda says, good, good, bad, bad. And none escape the law. He's talking about causation, karma. Whosoever wears a form, wears the chain too. But far beyond name and form is Atman ever free. Say, um, no, thou art that. Say, Om, Tat, Sat, Om. No, thou art that. Sinyasi board. Say, Om, Tat, Sat, Om. You are that pure consciousness beyond Katritva Bhaktritva. One more thing, which has not been said here, Krishna will say much later in the 13th chapter. I, Krishna, and you, the sentient being, you and I are one. He will say in the 13th chapter, Kshetragyam chapi mam vidhi sarva shubharata. In all these bodies and minds, uh, there is one consciousness, and I, God, am that one consciousness. But I am that one consciousness. Krishna is saying, I am that one consciousness. So, you and God, the sentient being and God, are one. Tattvamasi, you are that, aham brahmasmi. That great identity, uh, Advaitic identity, is revealed by Krishna in the 13th chapter. So I have made seven points here. Self-knowledge. What is self-knowledge? Why self-knowledge? Because we do not really know ourselves. What good is self-knowledge? It takes you beyond sorrow. Nanushochanti pandita. What is this self-knowledge? What do I have to know about myself? That you are immortal. Nitya. That... Uh, you are all-pervading, not limited. Sarvabhyapi, sarvamidam tatam. That you are real. The world is an appearance in you, to you. Sat and Brahm, uh, world is jagat mitya. Then uh, fourth one, that you are, uh, um, you know, uh, immutable, abhyaya, unchanging. Everything else is changing. World is changing, body is changing, mind is changing. All objects are in constant change. The pure subject, consciousness, is immutable, abhyaya. It does not undergo change. Um, then uh, it 
you are not an object. Everything is an object to you, but you are not an object of knowledge. Aprameya. But that includes within brackets, Swaprakasha, self-luminous. You don't need to be an object of knowledge. You make all knowledge and experience possible. And then, uh, therefore, you are not a doer, you are not an enjoyer or sufferer. But then again, remember, other than you, there is no doer or enjoyer or sufferer. Karta and Bhokta, you the consciousness clothed in this personality, you are the doer and the experiencer of, of actions. Finally, Tattvamasi, Kshetragyam Chapi Maam Vidhi Sarvakshetreshu Bharata, seventh point, that you and the divinity behind this universe, God, Ishwara, Saguna Brahman, Bhagavan, you are one reality, but don't go about claiming that I am Krishna or I am God. No. Uh, the ocean and the wave are different. The wave can never be the ocean. But both the ocean and the wave are nothing but water. Similarly, Jiva is not Ishwara. But both Jiva and Ishwara are nothing but pure consciousness, existence, consciousness, bliss. So this is the central teaching of Sri Krishna, self-knowledge. Very good. I'm done. Uh, we have some time for Q&A. Thank you so much, Swamiji. The philosophy within Bhagavad Gita is both kind of simple and complex. But the way that you explain it to us, you know, I'm hoping that um, we can start our quest for learning to learn further. So thank you so much. We have quite a lot of questions. We'd said the questions were coming fast and furious. You know, I don't think you have enough or we have enough time to go through all of them. And I apologize up front that we won't be able to address all of them. Just asking you, Swamiji, is it okay if we kind of um, pull in a few questions, send it through to you later so that we can get the answers from you? Would that be okay? True. There is something called Ask Swami. Okay. You can find out the email address to send them there. They are selected once in a month. Some of these questions are selected and answered. Yes. Okay, fantastic. So we will we will kind of send it through to you after because I don't think we can get through all of them. No. But no. I'll bring up a couple of them. One of them was, what is the difference between asangatvam and nisangatvam? I was just looking at that question. I really don't know. I think it's it's basically the same thing. Asanga, nisanga. Um, to be non-attached. I don't know if you think deeply about it, maybe you can tease out some subtle um, etymological differences, but uh, as a spiritual practice, both of them are the same thing. Thank you. Um, and I'm just going to this question where it says in chapter 13 versus chapter 11, um, there is a saying that we should stop craving the company of people. Um, so it's just uh, it, it, the, the person is asking, is the Lord validating whether we can refuse to uh, be in a social setup? Is that what it means or is it, um, you know, she's just asking more about that. One should be comfortable in both. Absolutely alone in solitude. Be in Solitude is of great use in spiritual life. Why spiritual life? In artistic life, in scholarly life, everywhere solitude is very useful. But one should be comfortable. Uh, one should be comfortable alone. There are people who just can't be alone. They become very restless if they are alone. That's not good. And spiritual life is not possible if one is like that. But then there are people who cannot be in a crowd, who cannot, uh, who cannot, cannot tolerate company. One should also be not like that. One should be so peaceful within that in the midst of action and people, one is calm. And when you're completely away from action, from people in solitude, in peace, again, one is calm and productive inside. Thank you. 
Um, another question was, are Atman and Purusha the same thing? Yes, uh, Purusha is a word used, a term used mostly in Sankhya philosophy and yoga philosophy also. So what is meant by Purusha in Sankhya and yoga, pure consciousness? Uh, in that sense, it's the Atman of Vedanta. Remember, even the word Atman is used in multiple senses. There is a sense in which the body is the Atman. There is a sense in which the subtle body, mind is the Atman. And there is a sense in which pure consciousness is the Atman. Um, as pure consciousness, uh, Atman and Purusha are the same, but there are differences. For example, Sankhya and Yoga will say there are many pure consciousnesses, multiple selves. And Advaita Vedanta says that the self is one. Thank you. Um, and it all, another person asked, Brahma means vast, but it also means illusion. Um, so where exactly is the self in all this? Brahma does not mean illusion. Brahman means the vast. And the definition of Brahman you can find in the Taittiri Upanishad. Satyam Jnanam Anantam Brahma. Amazing definition. What is Brahman? It is limitless. What is limitless? Limitless what? Limitless existence. Limitless consciousness. Satyam Jnanam. Satyam is truth. But uh, when you investigate philosophically, it becomes being, existence itself, pure being, Sat. Jnanam. Jnanam means knowledge. But when you investigate, philosophically investigate it, it becomes chit, consciousness. So satyam, jnanam, anantam, brahma means sat, chit, ananta, limitless existence and consciousness is brahman. Another formulation is sat, chit, ananda, existence, consciousness, bliss is brahman. It just occurred to me recently, you know, when I was thinking, the three greatest questions of philosophy, all of philosophy is encompassed in um, three branches of philosophy, metaphysics, Nowadays, it's called ontology, epistemology, and axiology. So ontology, it asks the question, what is real? What's the ultimate reality? Ontos means being. What really exists? That's one question. What really exists? Epistemology, uh, it asks the question, how do we know anything at all? How do we know? The question of knowledge. And axiology is a new term, but it includes what was earlier uh, ethics, aesthetics, you know, what is good, what is beautiful. All of these things are now included under axiology, values. So what is the ultimate value? And now notice the terms used for Brahman, Sat, Chit, Ananda. These are answers to the three questions. The question of ontology, what is real, pure being, Sat. What is knowledge? How do we know epistemology? He says, Chit, consciousness makes knowledge possible. And third, what is value? Ananda, bliss is the answer for all values culminating in ananda and bliss. So this Brahman, Sat, Chit, Ananda, existence absolute, knowledge absolute, bliss absolute, to use Swami Vivekananda's translation, that encompasses and gives the ultimate answers to all of philosophy. It's incredible, that, uh, that term. Yes. And so it's not illusion. It is Brahman. And according to Advaita Vedanta, this Brahman is Atman. You are that uh, Brahman. Thank you, Swamiji. Uh, I have a related Brahman question, which um, here the person is saying, Brahman is something like glowing atoms. What do you say? Mm, glowing atoms. <laughs> I don't know in what sense he uses. I've never heard this um, um, uh, analogy. Glowing might be a good analogy for Swaprakasha, but atoms, no. Atoms are plural. Uh, Brahman is not plural. Atoms are objects, 
Brahman is not an object. Atoms are um, tiny. Brahman is not supposed to be tiny. Brahman is tinier than the tiniest and vaster than the vastest, larger than the largest. Anoraniyan, Mahato, Mahiyan. Thank you. Um, and there is a question about avidya. So what is the cause of this avidya that uh, we forget our true nature? Oh, this is a good <laughs> question, a deep philosophical question, one which cannot be answered. The re reason is that um, the question itself is not logical. Why is the question not logical? Uh, I found it, uh, I mean, the answer this way, that why can you not ask this question logically? Because avidya or maya, has these components, time, space, causation. Desha, Kala, Nimitta. And causation is cause and effect. Cause and effect means, uh, when you see something, you can ask, why is this here? The grass is wet. Why? The answer would be, it, it snowed or it rained. Why did it rain? Because there were clouds. So because, when you are asking why, why is there a video? When you are asking any why question, what are you asking for? You are asking for a cause. Now, that's perfectly all right within causation, within Maya, within this universe. But suppose you're talking about something transcendent, which by definition is beyond Maya. Beyond Maya is equal to beyond causation. So, it's like, so then you cannot ask the why question, because that beyond is not causally linked with this world. So, for example, uh, like the time question, you know, if you ask, what was there before time? You can't ask such a question because... Before and after are time words, the temporal words. So, moment you say before time, you have already accepted time. You can't ask what is outside space, because outside and inside are spatial words, the space words. The moment you say outside or inside, you have accepted space altogether already. The moment you ask why avidya, why maya, you have already accepted maya. You are within maya already. So that question does not arise. One Swami put it very nicely about this question. He said, you know, this question, why avidya, it doesn't bother an enlightened person. You know, Ramana Maharshi, Sri Ramakrishna, others, they, they don't, they're not bothered about this. We are bothered about it. So that Swami put it nicely. He says, on this side of enlightenment, we have the question, no answers. On that side of enlightenment, they have the answer, no question. <laughs> Thank you, Swamiji. Um, I guess I, I can ask you a couple more questions. Is that okay? Yeah, I'm sure. being very respectful of your time. I know that you're a very busy person. So, yeah. So, uh, next question is, can you please share as to what happens at the time of the death of the body to the sukshma sharira? And when does, the, when does it find a new body or next birth or take next birth? Yeah. So, this is... Uh... You find in the Gita, it is mentioned in the Chandogya Upanishad, it's mentioned. Number of Upanishads also talk about it, not in any great detail. So the basic idea is when the physical body dies, the um, uh, subtle body curls up into a seed form. It travels because of past karma. Of course, the Atman, pure consciousness is always there. And, and then it goes to other lokas, other worlds, where um, because of its past karma, it finds a new body and then it lives there for some time. These bodies can be human bodies, they can be devata sharira, like uh, divine bodies, whatever it is, generated by past karma. Those also come to an end. And ultimately we find our, wend our way back to this dusty world and we are born again with human bodies. And this goes on and on until enlightenment is attained and you become, or you realize your infinite nature. Till that time we are trapped in these finite bodies. 
Now, what happens at physical death? The subtle body shuts down for a while. It's a bit like, suppose your uh, laptop or iPad is damaged. Then you can't use it anymore. But that doesn't mean your data is gone. It's backed up in the cloud. The moment you get a new iPad or, lap or uh, you know, laptop, you can download the data and start working again. Something like that um, works because the subtle body remains even when the physical body dies. More fine-grained analysis than this, in fact, to the best of my awareness, is found the most detailed analysis, what happens step by step, is found in Tibetan Buddhism. They have, um, they have a very fine-grained analysis of pre-death, during death, and slightly after death, what, they, what happens, stages of the movement of the subtle body, they, they discuss this. You can look it up. There is a famous book, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. The Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, there, a very detailed discussion is given. Notice, Vedanta is not particularly concerned about that. Vedanta is, what did Krishna just say? It's just like changing clothes. <laughs> Thank you, Swamiji. So I'll take up the final question for today. And I, like uh, Swamiji mentioned before, we can we can send questions to him directly, um, and we will get the details, or we'll send out the details later. So this question asks: If one comes to the realization that one is the indestructible soul, what is the course of action to follow? Then you don't have any problem. Once you come to this realization, realization means not just hearing about it. It must become a living uh, experience. It's there. We don't see it yet. When we see it, this body will still continue. This mind will still continue. This personality will still continue. And yet you are free. At a deep metaphysical existential level, you are free. You are free, for example, of the fear of death. You are free from want, from sorrow. Like Krishna says, Nanu Shochanti Pandita. What will you do then? In most cases, the enlightened person goes on doing whatever he or she has been doing before that. And uh, might even be quite indistinguishable from other um, people around them, except their, uh, um, you know, the peace and the joy and the fearlessness. Uh, all of these would be extraordinary. Vivekananda says, what is the course of action? Heed no more than how body lives or dies. Its task is done. Let karma float it down. Uh, and then he says, go thou from, go thou without fear. Uh, without fear of pain or, or uh, greed of gain, go thou from place to place and help them out of Maya's veil. So one might be a uh, you know, person who helps others to attain enlightenment. Or one might just continue. Sri Ramakrishna gives the example of two kinds of people, uh, enlightened persons. One might be, he says, you have to imagine in Bengal, there are many mangoes are there. Somebody eats a mango and then wipes the face. So you don't know he has eaten the mango. <laughs> That means, so the enlightened person, you might not even be able to recognize an enlightened person. In other cases, Sri Ramakrishna says, like three friends were going uh, together and they saw this high wall and they were curious what's on the other side of the wall. With great difficulty, one of them climbed up on top of the wall and he saw something and he started jumping in joy and dancing on top of the wall and jumped over on the other side. These two were taken aback. What happened? What did he see? Second person climbed. He also danced in joy on top of the wall and he jumped. Now the third person was left. He was very curious. What is that? What is there to be so happy about? He climbs and he sees there's this great festival um, in um, you know Mela. Mela in uh, Indian languages, Mela is like a village festival which happens. So a mart of joy. A lot of joy is going on. A lot of uh, happiness is there on the other side. 
And he was delighted. He was able to, about to jump and join his friends there on the other side. But then he thought, if I also jump and disappear, who will go back to that poor village of ours and tell the suffering people about this? Who will give them this good news? So he turns his back upon freedom and enlightenment. And he's enlightened, but he turns his back upon that freedom and he comes back into this world and guides other people to enlightenment. Now that's another course of action. So there are different kinds of enlightened persons. No rule can be made. What is the course of action after you become enlightened? No rule can be made. You are absolutely free. And um, who knows what you will be. Thank you so much, Swamiji. That was a beautiful ending to today's session. And I, I cannot thank you enough for taking time to speak to us in Canada, in this cold country of Canada. And you know, I know that some people are joining internationally as well. I'm so, so pleased. And thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. So Swamiji, would you like to do the Shanti Mantra? Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Pranamastu. Please take care. Stay safe, everybody. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank, okay. you. Thank you. Thank you. Namaskar. Thank you.